Hello. Hello, John. How are you? Uh, I'm well, Dan. How are you? Pretty good. So you were just looking... Can we talk about it? You were just looking at a house? Yeah. Well, what's the skinny on this one? Well, you know, the skinny on this one, it, um, it's a house that, uh, you know, when the listing showed up, four different people sent it to me within 15 minutes really of it going live. So I wasn't aware that so many people were following along. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, people that I know, but Mm -hmm. uh, they were all like, check it out. And then this morning I woke up and, and, uh, the across the street neighbor here where I'm staying, sent it to me. So, uh, that's some indication given that about 80 houses a day, come online in Seattle that this was a good match that this was a good match. So I went to see it this morning and, uh, excuse me. The, um, I mean, it's a total, in some ways it's a total wreck and hopefully that will scare people away. Mm-hmm. And by wreck, I mean, it was built in 19, you know, it was built in the fifties and, it was original owners who mm-hmm. almost certainly either just died or are so old that they can't live there anymore. Right. And so it's completely untouched. All the original light switches. At some point along the way in the 1980s, they put in a new stove. Um, there's some water that got into the basement at some point. It needs a new furnace, a new hot water heater, a new electrical panel. In so many ways, it is a thing that hopefully will scare off all the people. Yeah. Uh, because my list of criteria for a house, it meets almost every one. Ah. It's, it's private. It's untouched, unrestored. It's, um, it's got a full basement. It's got all the space I need. It's one mile exactly from the house where my daughter lives Mm -hmm. and her mother, where I'm staying now, three minutes by car. And however long it takes you to walk a mile in my case, at my present age, I would say that was if I was hustling 12 minutes, there was a time when I was young that I could do a seven minute mile. I was never much of a runner. Yeah. Yeah. When I was I, on the cross country running team. I used to jog on a regular basis back in high school and college. And I could do under a six minute mile. Easy, easy. Yeah. Go baby. But now I don't even want to yeah. think about it. I know. Well, um, I was on the cross country running team and I was so terrible. I don't know if I've ever told you, probably not, but the first time I ever actually raced in a competitive cross country race against yeah. uh, all the other high schools in the, in the town. Yeah. It was at a golf course in Anchorage called Russian Jack, Russian Jack golf course. <laughs> 
and uh, all the high school boys all lined up. How do you remember up, you know? these, these stupid little details? Just in general, how do you remember all this crap? I don't know. Because all these years I've been listening to you tell these stories, and either your memory is absolutely ridiculously great, or it's all made up. <laughs> and I'm not sure which it is, but I have a feeling it's just really that good. Because like you the remember people's is, names, you remember the locations of things, you remember like the size lug nut that went on this particular truck's, you know, thing. Like, how do you do it? It makes it infuriating to argue with me because uh-huh. when people <laughs> say, well, I told you, I said, blah, 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 blah. And then I say, well, actually what you said is this. Oh, so you and, remember you what know, other people say too? Oh, for sure. Uh, because when people recall what they said. Uh-huh. Like two months later, yes. they always change the words. They they just they change like three words in the uh-huh. recollection of what they said. <laughs> okay, but they're but they're the three words that that convey all the meaning of uh-huh. the argument. They're like, well, I said <laughs> that you needed to be there by four, and you were there at four fifteen, and then I'll say, actually, what you said is try and get there by four. And I got there at 4.15. Now, you needed to be there at 4 and try and get there by 4 are 100% different things. Mm -hmm. And then the person goes, (laughs) fuck you. (laughs) And I go, yeah, I I mean, yeah. I I get that a lot, right? Yeah. Anyway, so I'm there at the starting line. Never been in a race before. And my friend Matt Olness, who is like, who was the champion of our team. He leans over and he says, when the, at the starting gun, you need to try and get out ahead of the pack. And what he meant was we start 50 boys across five boys deep or whatever, a huge crowd. And then that narrows down, you know, a quarter of a mile up, it narrows down to a single track. And so he was saying, you know, you need to get out ahead right. because once the, once the crowd narrows down, then you're just stuck somewhere. And I was like, right, right, right. Get out ahead. And so the gun goes off and I take off like a shot mm-hmm. and I get way out ahead. And by the time we get to the single track portion, I look back over my shoulder and I am 300 yards ahead of what? everybody hauling ass. Yeah. And I was like, whoa, I'm the greatest cross country <laughs> racer in history. Uh-huh. I had no idea. You know, I'd never been in a race and I'm running and I see the, all the people standing on the sidelines, all the adults yeah. and other kids cheering. And they all have looks of complete astonishment. Like, whoa, who is this Olympic class runner? Yeah, right. So we get down to the end of, you know, the this long long stretch and then the the course turns and does like a like a big turn, like a 120 degree turn, kind of back and straight up a hill. And I turn and you know, I'm I can now I can see the whole crowd. I'm so far ahead of them and I'm just like and I'm not winded. I'm just like cruising. And I hit this hill 
and I get about three quarters of the way up the hill and I've run completely out of gas. Like I just blew it. I blew uh, everything in the first 10 minutes of this race, the first six minutes of the race and about halfway up the hill, I'm like, <sighs> and by the time I get to the top of the hill, the first runner goes by me and then it's just like, and whatever it is, 90 high school boys run past me as I'm like, blomp, blomp. and each one of them, as they go by, you can just hear them snicker. Yeah. And whatever it was, a 5K or a 7K or whatever that race was, <clears throat> I came in dead last. Ugh. And like, you know, five minutes behind the last racer and just dragging ass. I crossed the finish line and barfed. And I was absolutely just like humiliated and also confused. And Matt walked over then and he was like, I meant like get out ahead of the pack. You you can't sprint. You're not supposed to sprint. You gotta you gotta keep some in reserve. And I was like, right, right, right. Got it. Got it. I never was a successful cross country racer. I mean, later on in the season, I, you know, <laughs> that's a wonderful summary of, of that story. <laughs> later on in the season, I was in the, you know, I was, I was in the back 30. I, I, I beat other kids yeah. to the finish line. I wasn't always last, Yeah, but you know, and this was a time when Matt was like all city. He went to stay, you know, just like all, all, all out. And I'm like, you know way back in the pack but not an embarrassment but i didn't want to do it anymore no i don't blame you i barfed this morning why because the house i think so really just the stress of it all i think so i didn't sleep a wink last night not us not for a single minute because of the house yeah when did you find out about it i found out about the house about nine o'clock at night and I immediately jumped in the car and I drove to the house. The house is not occupied. It's empty. And I spent 45 minutes prowling around the house in the dark. Looking in, checking things out. I, I looked in and saw some things that were concerning. Mm. But overall, I was like, whoa. What was concerning there? What mo- most concerning? The, the basement which is an important part of the house for me. Yeah. Uh, it's not completely unfinished. It's just sort of haphazardly finished. Okay. But there were signs that there, that water had gotten in over the years. And I think that if the owners were 90, um, probably what happened was water started getting in and they just didn't go downstairs anymore. And so they didn't do anything about it. And you know, you, you look at enough houses, when you walk into the basement of a house and there's a fan going in there, somebody has, the real estate agent has taken a fan and put it in. Yeah. You're like, Oh, I get it. All right. Uh. There's some, you know, it smells, it smells musty or moldy that there, there's not water damage. And is it, is it confined to the basement? Oh yeah. 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 And only what it is, is one wall of the basement is underground. 
And so even though the house, it's not like the house sits in a puddle, but there's a wall that's, that's seeping, you know, it's a cement wall and Uh and water has seeped in. So I'm like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and I looked and I could see, oh, the furnace is from 1900. But these are easy so, things to fix. This is this yeah. is not like that other place that you were looking at. You could no, put a new no. furnace in and an afternoon and get the right guys with the right tools. Yeah, this is just, when I bought the farm, I realized after I'd lived there for a while and had fixed up some things. Yeah. That. There was what I what I described as a homeowner monetary unit, which was or an HMU, which was five thousand dollars. All right, anything, yes, I'm familiar with this. Yeah, anything you do on a house, it's going to cost one homeowner monetary unit at least. Yeah, and maybe two homeowner monetary units. And if you're going to replace the roof, you know, you're talking about two or three, depending on where you live. And so, looking at this house, even through the windows in the middle of the night, I was like. Oh, there's a homeowner monetary unit, and there's one, and there's one, right? Like, oh, I can see $15,000 worth of work that needs to be done from outside. But that doesn't deter me because of exactly what you just said, which is that that's not to do with the bones of the house, with the style. That's just call a guy and pay him $5,000. Right. Which, you know, because of the because of the transactional truth of my current situation as described on a prior episode of road work, I am able to throw $5,000 at this guy and Mm -hmm. at that guy. Right. So I'm not scared of that. Now that's the type of stuff that other people go, Oh, I got to, because when they walk in, they're like, I got to replace the kitchen. I got to replace the bathrooms, but I don't have to replace the kitchen or the bathrooms because I love them. They're perfect. All I have to do is replace the mechanicals and it's not nothing. Anyway, I was walking around it last night, poking and prodding. I came back here. My daughter's mother asked me a question about it and I got in the car and drove back to it. It's only one mile from here. Wow. So then I was back prowling around it in the dark again at 11 o'clock. And then I came home and I was tired. I I didn't get a lot of sleep the night before. I was ready to go to bed. I went to bed. I lay down and I just sat in my bed and thought about the house until dawn. And then I got up and I had some coffee. And then I went over to the house yeah. in the day and toured it. And all the things that I'd seen from outside were true. Uh, the owners of the house had clearly been Boeing aerospace people. Dad was Boeing aerospace and there was a door in the house that had stickers from all the Apollo missions. Meaning that dad worked on the Apollo program don't know pretty cool there was a door like a child's bedroom that had the shadow of a giant sticker of the uh that just said you know boeing 727a um so dad clearly worked 
on the 727 program. And the 727 uh, was retired in 1984. You know, the 727 was being built in the early 60s. And whatever kid there was that lived in this house had, you know, put that 727 up on his door like, yeah, super cool. So the house has aerospace connection, which is like, I'm super into that. Yeah. I've been, I've been told by various people over the years that I need to practice better OPSEC because I talk about my house. I talk about where I live and there are people, intrepid people, maybe not even intrepid people, maybe just regular creeps who find it easy to find where I live. Yeah. And that that's bad policy on my part, because typically anybody that would go to the trouble to find where I live, I mean, they're the ones that are just doing it because they can, who are like, oh, that's bad OPSEC. Let me find out where he lives. You know, it's just like some people want to watch the word world burn. Right. Like, oh, I can hack a Ford Fiesta. Let's do it. But if there's somebody that's like, I want to know where he lives because I want to go visit him. That have I should you, have you ever afraid. had that happen though? Well, one time, about five years ago, I was driving home to the farm and I noticed there was a sticker on a stop sign two blocks from my house that said hashtag super train. Hmm. And it was a message from someone telling me that my OPSEC was bad. Oh, I see. Like knowing, they didn't. Knowing that you would see that. That's right. Putting it there they made no, in, in, a, in a way so that you would discover it, but you wouldn't necessarily even discover it right away. It might take you days, weeks, months. Right. But eventually you would see it and the, the point would have been made. Yeah. It wasn't even a stop sign. It was on some kind of sign, you know, some street sign. Right. That eventually, I mean, I interact with that street sign. I go by it. Uh, so yeah. eventually I would see it. Now, who, who even knows how long it was there? Probably not that long. Mm -hmm. I'm, I tend to be observant of things, particularly that change. But they didn't come to the house. They didn't put it on my mailbox. And they never tweeted me about it. It was just a, it was just a little joke between us. Mm -hmm. And in a way, I admired it. Because that took some restraint. There was a cleverness. Even. Yeah, sure. But I also realized that, that, that I had given away too much, that that was a vulnerability, right. which I didn't. And I think part of the reason that that person put that sticker there was that I talked all the time about how my house was my citadel. Uh -huh. And they were, it was also it was also a friendly warning. So has anyone ever are, like confessed to be having been the one no, that did it? No. Do you think you'll ever learn who it was? No. Do you I suspect don't. anyone? No, I think it's, you know, it's a Seattle person who, I mean, I, it's not like I gave away my address. 
I just talked about, I said, well, you know, because I'd mentioned what my house looked like many times. Yeah. And then I talked about, I don't remember what I said, but, you know, I mentioned some news item and I said some other thing and this person triangulated. Uh-huh. Got in, presumably got into the neighborhood, drove around until they saw the house and realized what it was. So it involves some work, but it's the type of thing I do, which is like, oh, I got nothing to do. I guess I'm going to go walk around this house in the middle of the night. Right. I get it. And I think in that sense, it was done with a certain amount of respect. Like, hello, fellow weirdo. Anyway, I don't, I, I, so I'm torn because I want to share with everyone who listens, who cares. I want to say, here's what's cool about the house and let me tell you more and let me show it to you. I just want to show it to everybody. You're excited. But yeah, but then there's 30,000 people who are like, I know where he lives Uh and how many, if you take 30,000 people and take the law of averages. One of them's a creep. Yeah. I was going to say one of them is going to be super creepy. Maybe five of them are creeps. Yeah. And given the nature of this show, maybe 11 of them are creeps because (laughs) you know, it just could be, I mean, it's, it's not like I'm a female comedian. It's not like four, 4,000 of them are creeps. Right. Anyway, all night long I was up. I got up this morning. My daughter got up. She said, what am I going to have for lunch today? She and I talked about what was going to go in her lunch pail. And she was coughing. And I was like, what are you coughing about? And she was like, I don't know. I got a cough. And I said, are you sick? And she said, no, I just have a cough. And then she like wiped some snot off her nose. And I said, you have a runny nose. Are you sick? She said, no, I just have a cough and a runny nose. And I was like, all right. Well, have a nice day at school. I hope that you don't spread it to everyone, but you're assuring me that you're not sick. And as soon as she was out of the house, I started to cough. Ah. And I was coughing and coughing, and then it became a kind of uncontrollable cough. Cough, 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 hard cough, hard cough. And then I was looking at the time and I said, it's time to go tour the house. And, you know, I'm outwardly calm. I even feel inwardly calm. Time to go tour the house. Cough, 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 cough. And then I coughed so hard that I had to go to the bathroom. And once I got to the bathroom, I coughed until I started dry heaving. And I dry heaved into the sink for, oh, man, like 40 seconds of dry heaving, which is a long time. Yeah. And then I was like, well. That doesn't make any sense because I don't feel sick either. My feeling is that that was some kind of sympathetic cough. Like she got the idea of a cough in my head and I just started going crazy. Yeah. Or that's how your nerves were coming out. And that's what it is. Why? I mean, I do. So I don't throw up even when I'm sick, even when I eat bad food and I have food poisoning, I don't throw up the few times. I mean, I, until the last few years, I could count the number of times in my life I had thrown up. Like I would get so drunk that I was a dead man walking. Mm. Although I never blacked out. I always remembered everything. But I was shit faced, blind all the time. Never threw up. 
I would just lay there, room spinning, unable to really move. Pretty interesting. Why do you think that is? You're like... um, Just lucky. Like magic. My sister throws up all the time. Always did. As a little kid, she was always, always throwing up every time she got sick. And me, I just... I didn't even understand why people did it. I was like, what's the matter? Why are, why are you doing that? You just had a couple of beers. <sighs> and maybe life would have been easier if I had, because I guess you, whatever's bothering you goes away. In the last couple of years, I've gotten food poisoning a couple of times because I eat a lot of pizza that I find under the bed. Oh, God, John. And I go, and I go no. to strange restaurants that aren't always fine i go to those restaurants where the sign out front says this restaurant did not pass inspection but somehow they're still open and i'm like seems good all the stuff that don (laughs) schaffner gets really upset about or not upset but he yells at me about yeah but i don't usually just throw up for no reason and i then i realized oh wow i'm really you're like invested in this emotionally invested in this i'm super stressed out yeah so anyway, I went this morning, I toured the house. I'm there with my real estate agent. And she said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want the house. And she said, all right, we'll make an offer on it today. And if they don't accept it, then we'll burn it to the ground. Well, no, we'll talk to the real estate agent. And when she gets some other offers, we'll just beat them. Right. You know, there, so there, is a, a, there is an argument for just making your single best offer out the gate. You know, well, and I mean, I'm not saying you should do that. I'm saying that there are, there are people who do things like that. I said to her, well, so what's our, how do we start? And she said, just offer asking price. Right. And say you'll give them 40% down and you'll, you know, you don't need an inspection. I mean, I've, I've looked at so many houses that I walked through and I was like, well, there's a kind of electrical panel from back in the day that is so bad that the state has declared them unsafe. Uh. And so when you buy a house, you need to replace this electrical panel. It's by a company called like Northern Pacific or something. Mm-hmm. Well, I've seen enough of them. That as soon as I opened the electrical box, I was like, well, it's got a Northern Pacific panel. Got to come out. That's a homeowner monetary unit. Mm-hmm. Uh, the hot water heater is so old it doesn't even have any energy efficiency stickers on it. So that's got to come out. There's no washer and dryer, so I have to buy those. Those are expensive. That's at least a homeowner monetary unit. And it's an oil-burning furnace which probably still works fine, but I've been very interested in heat pumps lately. Mm -hmm. So if the furnace has to go, I'll put it in a heat pump and that's expensive. But I've been through it so many times that like, what's an inspector going to tell me? Inspector's going to walk around. He's going to go, well, that's got to go. And I'm like, yeah, 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 I know. All the inspector can do is like put a marble on the floor and say, "Uh, the floors (laughs) floors aren't level. Yeah. And it's like, well, if I'd remembered to bring a marble, I could have figured that out. So anyway, Dan, I'm making an offer and the paperwork for the offer may come in right now. Oh, see, that's what I'm hoping is, is that it happens during. 
And if it does, um, then I just have to sign it. Um, I hope th- I hope this pans out. I'm really excited for you. Yeah, it's um, sounds I'm perfect. Hoping that, I'm hoping that it scares people. I'm hoping that 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 the amount of updating that it needs scares people away. I'm hoping um, that they, even though it's you know it's priced uh, competitively, you know it's not expensive relative to the house I made an offer on mm-hmm. two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm hoping that it's not one of those real estate ploys where they're like, we price it low and then people go crazy because that is a ploy. All right. So if I offer them, this is what the agent said, right? I mean, uh, the, she said, we'll just make an offer at full price. And I was like, yeah, but I mean, shouldn't we go over it? Don't we assume that it's going to get bid up? Shouldn't we just offer like more? She was like, nah, let's just offer asking price maybe they'll take it well you gotta try you gotta trust them they know what they're doing they do this it's their thing maybe that's what i'll yeah i was just like sure fine uh anyway there we go wow yeah this could be the day um, for you this could be the big day yeah yeah, it could. And, well, I um, hope so. My fingers are crossed for you because um, you're you're like me in that you're not you're the kind of person who doesn't do well when you don't have a secure base of operations. You know, just listening to you talk over the last uh, few weeks, you know, this seems very true. I'm I'm very much the same way. I like to have a you know. A base of operations. I like to know what's going on, you know? I do too. And, um, I don't, I mean, part of the stress is, boy, I've been doing this. I've been looking for a house for a long time. I haven't seen anything and I don't want to not have a house anymore. Yeah. And I want to get on with my life. My daughter said to me yesterday, she was, she, we were driving the two of us. And she said, I just want you to be happy just out of nowhere. She said, and, uh, she said, you know, I don't know. I don't know why you're not happy. And I said, you know, baby inside me, there's a kid who's always happy. He likes to play. He's a goofball. He likes to tease and tickle and have adventures and be fun. Um, but also inside me, there's an adult who is really strict and kind of mean to that kid. He's not mean to you. He's not generally mean to other people, but he's really mean to the kid that lives inside me. And anytime the kid that lives inside me seems like he's having fun or being fun, the adult inside me cracks on him. And tells him he has no right to have fun. And tells him that he's he's being bad. And that adult is a real bummer. And the kid in me is always 
sad because he doesn't get to have fun. And we drove for a while and she was quiet. And then she said, there's something like that in me. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what is it in you? And she said, there's a puppy in me that's calm, uh, like a furry cream colored puppy that's calm. Mm -hmm. But there's a red puppy. And when the red puppy gets mad, he convinces the calm puppy to be mad. And then, then they're both mad. And I nodded and we drove along for a while and it was like, Hmm. All right. That's different from mine, but she's eight and she's describing an inner life. Right. That's complicated. Very. And I, and I don't know whether she's, um, whether she's mimicking, mm-hmm. but she seemed to know what I meant and she seemed to be concerned about it. And she also had, a, she wasn't just like, I have that. She was, she was, um, she was quiet about it. And, uh, and so I've been kind of doing on that a little bit. You know, I've always, I've tried to explain to her over the years, like why I'm not, because she's a happy child Mm -hmm. for the most part, just generally like a happy person. Yeah. And she's never under, and she's also very empathetic and she's never understood why I'm not happy. And she tries to make me better. She tries to make me happy. Very sweet. Well, it is sweet, but I also feel like, you know, when she looks back at her childhood, I don't want it to be characterized by the fact that her dad was so, um, so down. And she's never known. Do you think that it's, that it's because when you're around her that you can relax and that she's, and that when you're relaxed, you're kind of, you allow the, uh, your, how, however it is you're feeling at that moment to come out, to be expressed. I mean, I have, I have resting depressed face. <laughs> yeah. But also, you know, my nature is, I mean, it's just evident that when I'm at rest, I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. And if I'm thinking, I'm generally thinking something that doesn't make me lighthearted. And so if I'm sitting on the couch, I'm staring into the distance. Right. And it's, and I look complicated. Yeah. And she bounds into the room and says, let's play. And I'm, I'm far away. You know, I have to return to earth first and then shake off what is a form of psychic exhaustion. Yeah. It's not that physically I'm exhausted. It's just that I'm, I totally know know, what you're talking about. Yeah. I'm burdened. Sure. And I'm not always able to do it. She says, come on, let's play. And I go, uh, yeah, I want to, but you know, unfortunately I'm on, 
you know, I'm on a far off moon trying to, trying to colonize it and, um, things aren't going very well. People are starving. She's like, huh? Okay. (laughs) That doesn't make any sense. And I'm like, well, yeah, right. It's true, but it's nonetheless real. Right. Well, I don't know when she's a teenager, whether she'll accept that, but either way, it doesn't matter. I'm not, you know, I'm not someone who's like, let's go toss a ball around. And I mean, I do it. I, I do it because I, because I recognize that, that it's important. You know, yesterday we went to the swimming pool. Um, we've, we, I, I go take her places and we do things. Um, but I'm, you know, I always have this friend in tow who's, who's there to remind me that I suck. Now with any luck, the new house will take away a kind of stress that I've, a kind of additional stress I've been carrying for the last year and a half, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also take away some other stresses, the stresses that I felt about my old house and my old life. And, you know, a lot of the idea behind having a new house was that I would, that I would transform. Um, in ways, transform in ways that I could start to forgive myself a little bit. And maybe it will. Maybe having a new house that has all its original 1950s light fixtures will will mollify me. I don't know. <clears throat> it's a plan, at least. It's It's more than not a plan. Right. And not a plan is my normal state. So at least I've had a plan for the last year. Right. And maybe having completed the plan, I will feel like, I will feel like people feel when they make a list of to do's and they cross one off. People have said that to me my whole life, make a list of to do's and cross them off. It'll make you feel better. Have you tried it? But the first well, the first thing on my list of to-dos is always finish your novel. And it's like, well, I can't cross that off. Have you I can't started get that done a, a novel? I didn't realize you were working on one. Well, I've got a screenplay about a heist. I've got a heist movie screenplay I've been working on. I'm in. But no, I've got my, I've got my walk book. Uh, finishing college was always right up there on my to-do list. And wait, I finally wait, did wait, that. Wait, 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 wait. Walk book? Walkbook. Like the book a, about my walk across Europe. Oh, not cooking with a walk. No, not a double. Okay, no, I understand. And it's just the way you pronounce although, it. Although that would be hilarious. I was going to uh, say, you know, write a book about, call it the long walk, but it's yeah. W O K. Right, yeah. but it's just about cooking. <laughs> yeah, the, the, I often pronounce the L in walk. Uh huh. I walk instead of I walk. Walk. How do you, how would you pronounce this word spelled O-F-T-E-N? Often. Often. I say often. And my son, my son now says often. And I'm like, 
Who the hell are you? I don't know where that came from. Well, I suppose it's, it, it, it's a, it changes from sentence to sentence. Like if I were to say, how often do you go to the store? Do you hear a T in that? I didn't. Right. So, so if I'm phrasing it like that, I think I don't put a T in it. But if you were to say, uh, when do you go to the store? I would say often. So it's, it's one of those, but I mean, I definitely say everybody, (laughs) Hey, everybody get over here. (laughs) Like that's just like a, that's like an Atlanta pronunciation, but it is, it is a regionalism of the Northwest too. I hear other people do it. Everybody. Okay. My daughter's mother teases me for it. She's like, Oh, everybody. I was like, yeah, everybody. E R B U D D Y. Everybody. I don't know, man. I don't know what's going to, what I, I'm hopeful for your house though. I'm very hopeful. Well, yeah. I mean, if, uh, if I get it, I'll be in by Halloween. Wow. That's great. And th- well, yeah. And then all of those, like the storage space and the shipping container that are just sitting out there full of my things. Then I begin that process, which is not everything that I took out of my old house is going to go into the new house. Mm. Things are going to come out one at a time and I'm going to hold them up and evaluate. Right. Does this belong here or is this something from an earlier time? And, um, that also I hope is, is, catharsis i don't see how it couldn't it, how it how it would not be right you know like uh, you're only it's only going to be uh, an improvement in that way it's only going to be right. like lightening your load one hopes but i mean i and i think i think i did some good things when i left the house you know i was sad to leave my piano yeah. And I've listened to a couple of recordings of me playing the piano and I can't do it right now. Oh, it's too, too hear, soon, right? Too soon. It's too soon. If I listen to myself playing that piano, I get all like, what, a, what did I do? Yeah. But what I did by leaving the piano was I established a benchmark of sentimentality where if I pull something out of a box and I go, but this is the belt buckle I wore the night that that girl told me that I that my hair was dumb. I can't get rid of this belt buckle. It's a reminder of that, of that, of that humiliating moment. Then I can say, you left the piano, your mother's <laughs> piano, where you learned the piano, right? Right. Where you wrote all your piano songs. You're going to keep this belt buckle. And it's, That's I feel like it's a great, it. yeah, it's a great, a line in the sand. If I'm going to keep something, it has to be more important and have more of a justification than keeping my piano. Mm. And I feel like that's a good, that's a good line in the sand. I had, you know, my friend, Anna banana owns a store called pretty parlor. Okay. 
I didn't know you and, knew someone named Anna Banana. I mean, I don't. I can't imagine anybody listening to this program doesn't have at least one friend named Anna Banana. Yeah, I'm sure. But Anna Banana runs the pretty parlor. It's her. Sh- it's her shop. And I had all this stuff. I was moving out of my old house, and just all this stuff. I couldn't. You know, it's all that stuff I was going to eBay. And I never did. And I called up Anna Banana. I hadn't seen her in a while. And Anna Banana came out to my house. And she sat with me and looked at all of my clothes. All these coats that were made for the queen and all of the suits that were worn to the Kennedy inauguration and all of the (laughs) crazy shit. Yeah. And she said, I'll take it all. Wow. I'll take everything. And so this fall, because most of my stuff is autumn and winter stuff because, you know. It's always, it's always autumn and winter there. Yeah. This fall, the pretty parlor is going to roll out some Roderick clothes. Yeah. And she said she's going to put a little sticker on the price tag. Like every, everything in the store that has a green dot on it came from the Roderick collection. I see. But it was really, it was really great to get these, to get rid of this stuff. But it was also really validating that she thought it was worth something. Oh yeah. You know, because a lot of the burden of that stuff was, I can't just give this away. This coat was made by the, made for the queen. And it was worn to the Kennedy admin, uh, the inauguration. Like, how do you just give this away? It's too, it's too good. It's too important. Too important. Too special. Too much of a piece of yeah. history to just get rid of. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's just like this house. You don't want to tear this kitchen out of this house. I don't care if it's a, I don't care if it works. It belongs there. It's the heart and soul of the place. So for Anna Banana to say, yes, I'm an, I'm a, I'm a, a mercantile person. All I, I mean, I don't want anything in my store that won't sell. I don't want anything in my store that isn't nice. And I'll take all of your crazy clothes. I was like, Wow. It makes me feel good and it makes it easier to unburden myself of these things. Right. Because in a way there now she gets it. Right. And so she's not only does she get it, but she can sort of represent that to the clientele and it won't just wind up in some bin somewhere to be picked through by somebody who just needs a coat. And uh, now great. I got some coat. What's the history on it? Well, the history is I went to Goodwill and picked it off the shelf. Now, like the history will be preserved too. Yeah, she's going to tell them what's cool about it. Right. And the thing is, my friend Anna Banana is hopefully going to make money on it. Even better. You know, like it, it doesn't end up just sort of, because the thing is, I love thrift stores and I give so much stuff to thrift stores. I give because this, you know, because I like to go shopping in them. So if I buy something for $5 and I wear it for five years when it's time to get rid of it, I give it to the thrift store because I got my $5 out of it. Right. But if it's a, if it's a coat that was made for the queen, uh, I can't just give that back to the thrift store. Like no. I, when I found that it was a, 
it was a uh, a moment, a moment where I was rescuing this coat from from a, a worse fate. And now Anna Banana is going to sell it to somebody, and she's going to charge enough that that person is going to value that coat. I mean, it may end up at a thrift store again someday, but it's got you know, its life was prolonged, and more there was, and more it gave more love, and it received more love. And I'm just hoping that as I get rid of stuff that I, that, that somehow the, the pain of it is eased by finding homes for things, not just shooting them out of a barrel, not throwing them into a dumpster, but like finding people that those things now belong to kind of like the piano. I left it with those, the, the people that bought the house and I right. think that they treasure it. And you know, my mom did a bunch of research on that piano 40 years ago and she wrote up a little thing that said, this piano was made in this year. It was made in, in made by this company at this time uh, or in this location at this factory. Here's, the serial number, you know, she put all of that information on a little sort of plaque almost, and she put it inside the piano. So if you go look at it, it will, it has its metadata. Right. Which is my mom's version of, uh, of, um, sending it out into the world, except she did it for us. I mean, that, that little, that little plaque sat in the piano for 40 years. <laughs> That's cool. Before it, you know, now somebody else looks at it and, and it's stuff that they, they wouldn't maybe, or maybe they would have been able to find it now, but for that 40 year period where there wasn't an internet, it involved having gone to the library. Right. Or more, you know, I like to do that too. I like to say, I mean, some of those coats, now that I think about it, I should have left a little note on the inside pocket. Dear future owner of this coat, you know this was worn to the Kennedy at inauguration. I don't know that for sure, but looking at it and knowing what I know, I bet you it was. Signed, former owner. You wouldn't identify yourself, you don't think? Mm. To sort of lend additional credibility to the story of the coat? Because like if you said that it was from the Kennedy administration, weren't to the you know Kennedy inauguration, to me, that would have more credibility than just if I just found a note signed former owner. If this is like Seattle's own John Roderick, I'd be like, oh, well, John said it. Okay, well it must have been. He wouldn't lie. He wouldn't make that up. He wouldn't say something he didn't know. I think if you're going to leave notes, you've got to you've got to you know really make a. Make a showing of it. I, I feel like there is some work that we all have to be vigilant against ego. Yeah. No, ego but this is, is this is not yeah. an ego thing. This is doing a service to the next owner. Well, I agree, and I see the. I would love to find a garment and in the pocket find a letter 
that told me something about the garment. I would yeah. love that. Anything I found, every anything I bought, I would want to know more. The other day, a month ago maybe, um, I think I've I've talked about it before because I've had an experience of people uh, in the world giving me information about a thing, but but this last time it was. Um, to a much greater degree, I have this photograph that I found at a thrift store that was down in the area around the kind of Boeing uh, skunk works. Okay. And it's a picture about, it's a photograph about four feet long by 18 inches high. And it's a picture of the very first photograph taken of the earth from a lunar orbit. And it was sent back to earth in the form of many, many, many strips. It's black and white. And it was many, many strips of film because the camera could only take, um, could only take pictures in narrow bands. Right. And it was transmitted from this satellite because the satellite never returned to earth. It was a lunar exploration satellite that crashed into the moon surface, but it took this picture and sent it back and was printed out. And at the time it was celebrated, it was a celebrated photograph. Okay. And we see the later version of it, the version of it where it's the big blue marble in space. Yeah. But this is an, er uh, this was the first one. That's, that's kind of, you know, it's like pretty ragged looking actually. But I had this photo of it and it's a big item. Uh, it's a heavy, it clearly framed in the moment. Um, you know, it's a, it's got this sort of sixties frame glass. Mm-hmm. And at some point, a couple of years ago or more, I was talking about it on, I was probably talking to, to Merlin about it. And I got a, I got some responses from people who said, that's a thing that was, you know, that is a, souvenir that was given to people that worked on the space program. And if you were, you know, there were, there was, there was one version of it that was like eight feet long that went to the people at, uh, you know, the jet propulsion laboratory. Mm Mm-hmm. But then other ones, you know, kind of went to people that worked on the, you know, that worked on it. Well, and, 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 and the report was like, these are, these are somewhat prized because they're, they're rare and they have a historical connection to Apollo, you know? Yeah. Well, so I kind of, 
I was intrigued by that and I was kind of pleased, you know, I was chuffed that I had this thing, but I didn't look any deeper into it. But the other day after, after I'd moved and this, this framed photo was kind of leaning against a wall, I took notice of a sort of scrawled name written on the back, sort of like a letter inside of a jacket or inside of a piano. And it said, Bill Johnston. Oh, that's what you were talking about with a Johnston with a T. That I saw you talking about that on Twitter. Yeah. So I went online and I was like, Bill Johnston, Bill Johnston. If his name is on the back of this and this is a thing that was given out to people. Yeah, right. Who's Bill Johnston? And so I went to the Apollo you know, there's a big list of people that worked on Apollo. That's kind of a commonly known list. Apollo heroes. He wasn't on that. So that was a bummer. And I went on, you know, Boeing. I said, he's got to work at Boeing. How did this thing end up here at some thrift store in, in Auburn? No, he didn't seem to work at Boeing. So I kept looking, kept looking, trying to figure it out, trying to find stuff. And eventually I realized that, oh, Bill was a nickname for this guy. His name isn't Bill. It's something else. What the hell was his name? Um, <laughs> I So I, I found stuff out about it. Yeah. I was like, he worked at Rockwell. And he was in charge of the X-15 project. Um, oh, and cool. the X-15 was the, you know, the, uh, the rocket-powered airplane that was the first airplane to go, in, to go up into space. The X-15 pilots that went up to like over a hundred thousand feet actually got astronaut wings. Oh, cause technically they were in space. Yeah, that's right. Because the, you know, it was an airplane, but it was powered with a, with a rocket. Right. And it's where I, I mean, I think, uh, I think Neil Armstrong was an X 15 pilot. You know, it's the, it's the Chuck Yeager guys from right. the right stuff. Right. And this Bill Johnston, whose real name was like, he went by a lot of different names. I discovered him on some, uh, he was an author of a couple of papers about like some of the surfaces on the F or the X 15 that, um, on reentry, they recognized that the heat that was going to be generated on reentry by these vehicles would burn them up and they and they didn't have a material that could deflect that heat so they they made these uh, they made these heat tiles that the whole point of them was they were going to degrade as the ship came back into the atmosphere the right. tiles would kind of burn off hmm. and so he was working on that project and talking about it but then I lost the trail of this guy. I didn't know anything about him past about 1967. Well, so I had this, I had this 
photo that I was pretty confident at this point because Bill Johnson was a guy that worked in the space program. But this was clearly Bill Johnston. And Johnston is a rarer name. Yeah. But I was pretty confident that this picture belonged to Bill Johnson, but I lost, I lost all track of him past 1968. And, you know, he worked for Rockwell, but Rockwell got, uh, or no, I'm sorry. He worked for North American aviation, which got ab- absorbed into Rockwell. And I didn't have, I knew he worked at North American. I didn't find anything about Rockwell. So I went online. Anyway, I went on Twitter and within three hours, the genius universe of Twitter librarians and detectives Mm -hmm. had found all this information about him, including a magazine advertisement for Rockwell that said, we're proud of our, you know, with a staff like this, of course you're going to make it to the moon. And it had (laughs) a a picture of like six white dudes all with like pocket protectors and there was Bill Johnston, who he had some other name. You know, he was, he was, um, what was it? It was uh, E. W. Johnston. Of course, yeah. Oh, good, e, the, good old E. W. E. W. Right, and E. stood for something like Ernest or whatever. Right, and sure. so, so he appeared under all these names. Well, people found it out, and. Uh, so now I have this story of the guy, you know, he lived in, he, I don't, I never saw that he ever lived in, in Washington, but all of a sudden my lunar photograph became really imbued with history and and I, you know, I knew about this guy, I printed out his magazine ad and all the information I'd found about him. And I taped it to the back of the photo so that whatever happens to this photo, the people of the future will at least know about EW. Mm-hmm. Now, how, why he got, why he was not on the list of Apollo famouses, but I mean, you could see why he got this picture. He worked with Neil Armstrong, right? On the X 15 project. A lot of the dudes from the X-15 ended up being part of NASA or, you know, part of space NASA, not just rocket NASA. And so somebody was like, we got to get one of these pictures to EW. Well, in touring the house today, the house that I'm going to make an offer on at any moment. Right. Right. And seeing all those Apollo stickers and that Boeing 727 stuff and recognizing like, oh, here's a house owned by one of those dudes. And I'm going to put my silly ass thrift store moon picture, Mm -hmm. earth picture, up on a wall somewhere in this house, hung with pride, and the and the cycle of life <laughs> goes on. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna have to buy some. I'm gonna have to then go and find a '60s flight suit to wear around the house. And maybe I'll buy one of those Corvettes that the that all the astronauts had during uh, Mercury. Yeah, why not? And just start driving around in a Corvette. I love it. Love this because idea. why the fuck why the fuck not? Just go the whole hog. Yeah. Oh, you have to. Certainly would establish a new aesthetic for me. Yeah. But I but I worry about stolen valor too. I don't want to represent that I'm like a Mercury astronaut. No. Do you think people would get confused about that or do you know yeah. or would they kind of get the feeling that you probably are just you? If I was driving around Seattle dressed in a flight suit mm-hmm. in a 50s Corvette. <laughs> no astronaut would do that, which is why I think you're safe. Yeah. Yeah. You know, It'd it's be like a it's very like weird when, cosplay. Like I am always surprised when someone who like owns a, a clothing brand or whatever, you know, like do you, we've talked about this. Do you wear your own t-shirt? Do you wear a long winter's t-shirt on stage performing at, in the long winters? I would say you don't do, do that. I do not. Know. Yeah. I think you wouldn't the, do that. By the same token, I don't think that I would put a note in a jacket and sign it. Your friend, John Roderick, because I am concerned at thinking even for a moment that because, because imagining that my ownership of it imparts some extra value Uh is something I'm shy about. I also, if I put a Filson bag up on eBay and there are two people, one of them in New Zealand and one of them in England, who both want not just a Filson bag, but one that I've talked about on one of our shows. I certainly want to give those two people an opportunity to bid it up more expensive than a regular Filson bag. Absolutely, I do. But the, but the optic of putting it online and saying, hey, everybody, it's me, John Roderick a celebrity want to buy my Filson bag. It's had my underwear in it. Mm -hmm. It feels like a thing I should, a a tendency that I should combat in my own self. Do not fall into the trap of thinking that you are important. It's fine for people to tell you that you're important to them and it's nice to be appreciated and I'm always grateful when someone does. But it's a little bit like going into a situation and telling people that you're woke or saying, particularly in that kind of conversation, like, I'm an ally. It's not a thing that you claim. It's a... It's a um, it's an award that other people bestow upon you. Right. You can tell someone that they are an ally. You can compliment someone on being woke, but you cannot say of yourself that you're woke. How do you know? You just, I mean, you can say that you want to be thought of as woke, but you ain't woke until 
you hear it from somebody else. And even then, they might be just trying to give you some shine. You know, like act woke, but don't claim it. Okay. It's not a badge, you know? You just have to act it, live according to it. And it's the, it's sort of the same. It feels like a similar kind of thing. Like it's a Filson bag, sell it. And if people, and if you, you know, if you talk about it and say like, I'm selling some Filson bags and then other people go and look at it, you know, that's up to them, but you don't, you don't put a letter inside a jacket and say, signed Mr. Big Shot. <laughs> I don't think it would be like that. I don't think that would be the impression of, of people, people would get. Not sure. I'm not a hundred percent sure. And the thing is, you know, there's always going to be somebody out there that's trying to take the piss out of you. Oh yeah. So even if 99% of the people in the world don't think that there's always some pitchfork writer who's like, Oh, this guy thinks he's so cool. Which also you have to combat a fear of caring about that. Those assholes. Yeah. There's so much you have to guard against, Dan. <laughs> I'm, uh, as I'm hearing, I'm learning. It's, I mean, life is so complicated. Yeah. I, I do feel like if I, if I was driving around in a 50s Corvette wearing an orange flight suit, that had a NASA patch on it. Yeah. Maybe life would be less complicated because yeah. I would have made some crazy ass choices and that would all speak for itself. That's my business card. Here he comes. There's, you know, you're not going to miss this guy. <laughs>